0: As you are aware, most of you are aware. Or if you're a visitor here, perhaps uh, you're just as a word of explanation, we are in a series at the moment called the, that we've just called the Church. We're just looking at various aspects of the of the Church. We started this really early in the year, had a three month break, obviously as the rest of the world had a three month break from pretty much everything, and uh, and now we're just just continuing on as we um, look at a handful of uh, topics that uh, I did intentionally. Uh, and move towards the end of the series uh, so that we were all back together again and we weren't doing this uh, behind a, a camera. And, and today we hit a topic which is uh, probably somewhat of a, a, a difficult topic. A difficult topic and it's a, a topic that has, um, yeah, has, has probably got some, a little bit of emotion charged to it in, in, in some ways and in some aspects. Uh, so what we're doing today is we are going to have a look at what i have titled God's Glory and Wisdom in Gender Roles. Um, and if you've got your Bibles, you can feel free to turn to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to have a look at that in a minute. But if uh, probably this is a, is a little bit of an introduction. And today the introduction might be a little on the longer side, as if that was something new, right? <laughs> but I want to say, say a, a couple of things. If you were here about, and it was probably around about this this time last year, uh, we had an evening. Um, I think it was like a midweek evening, a Tuesday evening, and uh, it was just a, a, like an open evening where we could. We, where uh, I was looking at taking this role on full time, not, not just the interim role, and we just had the opportunity just to discuss a, a handful of things in a pretty informal setting. And one of the things that I said at the beginning is that when we look at certain areas of our faith and what we believe. There are differing degrees to which we need to put emphasis on those things. So, and if you were here, I use the analogy: if there was two two guys that that came into the emergency room uh, at a hospital, one of them had a broken ankle, and the other one had a gunshot wound to the chest, which one would you treat first, if you were the doctors there? Hopefully, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, (laughs) the gunshot wound to the chest—it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with urgently. And action has to be taken on it. And you just gotta focus your attention on that. Now, the guy with the broken ankle also needs attention, but it can wait just a little bit, and it's not quite so urgent, right? So the idea of uh, what some call uh, theological—sorry—what the idea of triage is—the hospital scenario, scenario there, the French. Um, first kind of uh, formalized it and so they gave it a French name, triage, and there is a, a kind of a, a similar idea in terms of theological triage as well. In terms of we, we, there are certain parts of our faith and certain doctrines, if you want to uh, uh, use that label, the certain doctrines that we have to contend for and that we just must not back down on and they are central to our faith and, and, we, and we have to contend for them, and contend for them hard if necessary. Things like we are justified by faith alone. In, in faith alone and through Christ alone. Right? So things such as that. We need, we need to contend hard for some of those doctrines. We need to contend hard for a clear explanation of the gospel. We need, to, we need to make sure that we are absolutely clear that the gospel explicitly states that we are sinners before an almighty, perfect God and that we need saving. That every single person on the planet has fallen from, uh, from, from God's grace or fallen from a, uh, uh, from a state of union with God and we need God's rescue. And we need God's rescue and that rescue is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need to be absolutely clear about that, that we, we have to, each one of us must surrender to, to Christ and accept by faith his forgiveness for our sins so that we can be reunited with God, so that we can spend eternity with God and that we can have Christ living in us here on this earth so that we can live the Christian life that God asks us to live. And we can't do that without Christ. So those sort of things. We we just have to contend hard for those things. And if uh, there was someone that was coming along to having a, a differing opinion of, of that, we just need to be carefully and lovingly, but also reasonably strongly contending for those things. And then there are a bunch of other doctrine as well, one of which we are talking about today. Um, uh, the the roles of the, of the uh, genders in the church and in the home and there is. When it, can I just say right at the beginning, this is similar to the perhaps the the broken ankle at uh, at, at the um, emergency room. It is something that needs to be dealt with, and we, we need to talk about it. We need to discuss it. We need to land somewhere on the issue, and so that's what we're wanting to do today. But it's not something that we should be fighting about. It's not something that we should that should divide us. It's not something that we that we should have arguments about. We should discuss it maybe in this setting, maybe over coffee at some point, and if we end up disagreeing on it, that's okay. We should be able to sit side by side in the pew together and worship God together. Um, So uh, I just want to stress the importance, I think, of while this is a necessary uh, necessary topic to walk through today, I just want to set the scene that this is something that should not be divisive, it should not cause arguments, it should not cause fights, it should cause conversations, absolutely. And it should uh, it should cause us to dig deeper into God's word. But uh, someone said to me the other day that, uh, in a church such as this, if you're a Christian, and, and, we, and we come from here, we come from a whole lot of different kind of backgrounds, different traditions, etc. But if you're a Christian, we are on, essentially we are on the same page, you might say, because we are saved by faith, in, in our faith in Christ alone but we've, there might be a, a, some things that we're, while we're on the same page we might kind of be on different points on the page different different areas on the page and that's okay and we should be able to talk about that and maybe through talking we might come closer on the page but we're on the same page in terms of we are saved by faith and we uh, we place our faith in Christ and that is where we sit and that unifies us so Today, as we walk through this issue, I want to stress unity. You know, I want to stress that time and time again. Uh, the question then might be, why should why would we tackle a, a topic like this? Um, well, because the Bible deals with a with a issue like this, and so it's uh, it's it's important that we do that. And we and uh, there is a realization that there are differing views on this in a in a in a large church setting like this. There are differing views, and so to kind of sweep it under the carpet. Um, it Oftentimes, isn't the the most helpful approach, because things uh, things under the carpet they either make a big pile under the carpet, and then things get lumpy along the way, um, and or else some things if, it, if it's a bit of a bit of a more of a heated issue, things swept under the carpet can then start to simmer, and smoulder, and uh, and cause a a larger issue along the way. So. What we're keen to do here, as the elders and I have talked about this at length, is just to provide some clarity uh, around the issue, around the issue in terms of where the elders uh, have, uh, or elders land on the on this issue, and in terms of our practice as a church. So we're going to have a look at this passage here, it's First Timothy chapter 2, and uh, it's a passage that when we read through it, it might strike you, it might kind of there might be some force that, that it hits you with. Now, this is a passage that some say shouldn't be read in a church in the 21st century uh, and uh, because it has some striking language in it. But we, uh, we're going to have a, have a look at it. And we're just going to try and carefully walk through that. Firstly, I want to introduce you to some big words, very briefly. Nobody was uh, tackling some big words. Here you go, nobody here's one for you. This is something that would be painful to, to uh, try and pronounce. And by the looks of it, would probably be painful to have as well. Sorry, I have no, really no idea as to what that particular disease might do to you. We're not going to be talking about a, a words quite as long as that, but here's a couple of uh, big words there. And we want to just just define those very quickly before, uh, before jumping into the passage. Uh, Nobody mentioned complementarianism. And so here's how I want to define complementarianism, and we'll define the the second term, egalitarianism, uh, as well. And and I want to define them, realizing that some might have some different nuances here. Complementarianism, first big word. A belief that men and women are 100% equal in the eyes of God, but that God gives men and women different roles in the home and in the church. Okay, so there's there's a a broad brush uh, description there. And then egalitarianism, a, a, a second uh, idea there as well, uh, is the belief that men and women are 100% equal in the eyes of God and that this equality means that there cannot be a distinction in roles given to or available to men and women in the home and in the church. Now, I understand that some would, would, would uh, nuance that a little bit differently. Some say that perhaps egalitarianism could re- apply to the, the church and not the, the home or, and, and uh, some uh, variations in there. But broadly, those are the two. Two big words that we want to just utilise throughout this morning. All right, let's have a look at the passage. First Timothy, chapter two. We're going to start in verse eight and go down to verse fourteen. So Paul is writing to to uh, to his, uh, perhaps you might say, apprentice, in the the man Timothy. And he says in verse eight, chapter two, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that men should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You can probably feel there, just as we read, particularly the last half of that, uh, how some might really take objection to some of the some of these verses and uh, and, and and particular interpretations of these verses. So, we want to walk through them, and we want to just uh, just carefully go through them and and think through them together as a church. But let's pray before we do just that. Our Father, I just want to say thank you for your word. Uh, your word oftentimes confronts us. Sometimes it confronts us in terms of just our our own uh, simpleness and our own fallenness before you and Almighty God. And then sometimes it confronts us collectively, and we wonder what we do with some of these verses, and we wonder what... Uh, what to do uh, in terms of just how do we apply them in a 21st century setting. And so as we walk through this now over the next few minutes, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, give us open hearts, open minds, that you would uh, give us all as a church a a sense of unity. Even if we walk through this and, and still disagree with one another, Lord, I pray that we would be united on the things that are central, and I pray that we 're being united in your your goodness, your holiness, your perfection, and your great plan of salvation that you have accomplished through your son Jesus Christ. so I pray that you would just uh, uh, as a, as a group here just help us to uh, to think well about these things. pray that you would uh, help me just to uh, speak wisely and to just walk uh, carefully and gently through this topic and I pray that you would uh, bless us all as we tackle what is a difficult subject. So we thank you for this time. We pray for your blessing on it, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we walk through this, we need to uh, note a few things, um, and uh, we want to just uh, again just just have a, a look at how this passage that we've just read is going to impact us in the in, in a setting here in a local church in Tiyamwero in the 21st century. The first thing we notice then is that i'm sorry these points for some reason are not popping up one at a time that's all right that we as a church we are countercultural and just to, just to um, just to start off the the church as a, as a historical body started off you remember if you read remember your, your new testament started off as an incredibly countercultural idea the the Romans did not like this idea of the of this this Christian faith that was claiming a messiah and so tried to extinguish it unsuccessfully. and the, the early church faced a whole lot of persecution because it was so countercultural it was uh, it was so different to the prevailing culture around them. As you walk through the, through church history then it becomes kind of starts to become kind of normal and and the, the the church and the world around the church start to blend together that was around the time of Constantine. And um, and then at, through the through the subsequent years, there is just a, a slow degradation. I think of the of the of the church as the church became a whole lot like the world, rather than the world becoming like the church. The church became like the world to the point where we needed a uh, what was called the Reformation back in the in the sixteenth century. And so, uh, and, fr- and from that time onwards, there at the Reformation there was a spark again in terms of the the church suddenly became very countercultural. But again, particularly in the, in the West, uh, when, when we see in the, in the United Kingdom, and, and very much so in the, in the US, and then other countries such as Australia and New Zealand, there was again suddenly the, the church and the, and the culture around became very similar. And uh, so, the, so the, uh, the, the, the church and the culture uh, kind of walked alongside one another, and the church had a really large influence on the culture around us, on the world around us, which was a good thing. But then as the world started to drift, the, the church, kind of being very close to the world, just, just drifted alongside as well. And you, you see that, I think the best place to see that is in the American South at the moment, where a kind of a nominal Christianity is, uh, like a Christianity in name only, not in any real sense, uh, is just right through the American South as the church has just followed alongside the world. They've kept a few good values, a good nice value system uh, alongside, but has just crept into uh, into uh, just worldliness, but that looks kind of nice. And so I want to make the comment that, uh, that there we go. The others have magically disappeared. If the church and the world look the, look the same, then the church is almost surely in the wrong place. And I think church history teaches us that. And so when we come to verses like this, if we look at those verses and they strike us, and we uh, and we think that that how on earth can that be in the 21st century and 20 years into the 21st century? Do you realise we're a fifth of the way through the century, and that makes me feel like I'm old. But if we have a if we have an issue with these particular verses in the in the 21st century, then perhaps we need to check our heart. Perhaps we need to check our hearts and ask what's going on, because these, these verses, they, they take direct aim at some of the idols of our culture. Our culture uh, gets hit by complementarianism from two different directions. One is uh, the idea of expression, and two is the idea of authority. And the, that first one that first idea, our culture loves self-expression. We love to express ourselves. We and, and our culture values self-expression almost above all things. Think about social media. One of the primary roles of social media is for us to express ourselves. As if you all really love to know about what's happening about me and what I ate for breakfast and where I'm going on holiday and all those sorts of things. Somehow. We, we get the idea that we need to express ourselves and we need to express our, our, our ego to the, the world. And these verses, I think, then start to, to hit at that idea because there is only one being in the universe that must be expressed, and that's God. And our job is to express God. Our job is to represent God and to, pre- to present God to the world. Our culture loves the idea of egalitarianism. Our culture loves that idea, um, and particularly since the middle of the last century, uh, there has been the, the the idea floating around that that men and women should have all the same roles in the workplace. Men and women should have all the the, the same jobs, and there is there is an element to which we we, we look at that and we think, yeah, that there's there's no there is no reason why uh, women or men shouldn't have Almost any role, in any job. Yet, God God puts our biology in front of us and tells us and realizes us. I mean, you you look across the, the car park and you see someone walking across the car park and you can probably spot at a distance as to whether that person is male or female. God has put our biology right in front of us, and so some of the roles that we see even out in the workplace, some naturally towards men. Some fall naturally towards women. There are very few male midwives around and there's just a reason for that. The, and, and even in other spheres, I, I used to work in, in, in IT engineering and in that sphere and in the engineering sphere and just in general you'll find there's about 8% men, 20% women. In the nursing sphere you'll find the exact opposite, around about 80% women, 20% men. God has wired up men and women differently. We have different biology, we have different different uh, ways of looking at the world, and so uh, we end up expressing, just very naturally, we end up expressing those that biology in different ways and in different roles. And our, But our culture wants to deny the, the difference between the genders. Our culture wants to in and say, no, there must be this amount of uh, th- the men and this amount of women in particular roles in any sphere of society. Forgetting that biology means that uh, when, we, when we think about even things like the, uh, the, the likes of top CEO or board member rates in, in large corporations, there's a large press pushed to have a, a 50% representation of female in those roles. Now it's great when females and when women are able to take on those roles, but we, but we mustn't forget that the very nature of biology means that there is a large part of the female population that will choose voluntarily to do other things with their life which are as important, I would argue far more important, than board members on a, on a large corporation. That's going to take, and those other roles that they choose to do, which is wonderful and is glorifying to God, and incredibly glorifying to God, such as family, such as motherhood, etc. It's going to mean that they that they drop themselves out of the population that are going to go for those roles. And so the world around us wants to wants to press in and deny the deny the biology that God has put right there in front of us. And of course, the logical outworking of that denying of the biology is the transgender revolution that we see uh, happening around us right at the moment. The Bible is clear, though, that we live differently. Both men and women are like Christ in terms of we, we are to be continually being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Both men and women are. Both men and women are made in the image of God, but we reflect God in different ways, and we reflect God in different roles. I'm glad the world is not just full of men, and I'm glad the world is not just full of women. God has got it right when He put men as men and women as women. That's the first way that uh, the, the, the that these verses are countercultural. In fact, we as a as uh, Christians are countercultural, and of course, also our culture always has the particularly at this moment and and this and uh, this time in our culture, there is just an underlying question of authority. Uh, we see that at the moment. At, uh, at running all the way across the United States, just recently the riots that have been been happening. Now, it is good to question authority at times. It is good to keep authority and the authority structures in check. But there has been a, a, a usurping of authority in terms of the the rioting. A, the uh, the ideas of defunding the, the police. There has been the uh, in Seattle, Washington, the Capitol Hill autonomous zone or whatever it's called now that was a bit of an experiment for a few weeks and seemed to crumble pretty quickly as they realized actually they need police, they need medics to go in there and rescue people when they get, get injured and shot. So there are times where it's good to question authority, but our general posture as Christians is to submit to authority, and that's is something that is really hard for our culture uh, to do, and we are trained in our culture to always question authority, always push back on authority. I uh, mentioned this uh, last last year to the uh, to the youth group. So sorry you hear, you hear this uh, hear this again. When I was about seventeen, I was uh, driving from uh, from the college down there, uh, obviously finished school, was driving up to the chapel here for a music practice, and I was driving along in my uh, in my little. 86 Corolla, which I loved, and uh, was driving downtown, and uh, and a cop somehow pulled out of a of a road in front of me, and I was ended up just following the cop, and I realized, hey, this, this guy's going pretty fast through town, and uh, checked my speedo, and yeah, he's doing well over the 50k speed limit, and so I thought, I'm, I'm just going to follow this guy, see what see what happens here, and so we were going all the way around town. I'm not sure what he was doing, but he was going all zigzag all over town, clearly looking for something or someone. And he was going for it, and he didn't have his lights on or anything like that, and he was, uh, and he was really racing. And I was thinking, man, you know what, if, if, I, was, if I was driving a speed around town and he was following me, I'd get pulled up and I'd get a ticket. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull up the cop. Here we go. So I started flashing my lights at the cop. I was 17, very young, very dumb. Okay. <clears throat> I'm gonna pull the cop up. And so I'm um, flashing my lights at the car, but he wasn't really paying attention. He was keeping on going for it. And a, a soon, a, a, a little while after, it was just down there on uh, the bottom of Scorbrick Drive. Or maybe it was Hazelman Chris, somewhere down there. And, uh, and he pulled over. And I thought, huh, he's pulled over. Very young, very dumb. And then I realized, what on earth do I do now? Because <laughs> he's getting out of his car. <laughs> And so I got out of my car and I had a conversation with him about, uh, about the fact that he's speeding and he didn't have his you know, his Christmas tree lights on and he needed to have those on if he was going to be breaking the speed limits and etc etc And he's just looking at me and saying, what on earth are you doing? It's like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, okay, see ya. And, and I hopped back in my car. He hopped out back in his car and roared off as fast as he wanted to. Now, so the, the, the point of the story, the point of the story. What was going on with me? there. Clearly the, 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 the police officer was doing something that uh, that he shouldn't have been doing. Clearly uh, he, he should have, you know, he, if he wanted to be breaking the speed limit he should have, have his lights on and then he can very legally break the speed limit and do what he needed to. But what was going on with me there? Well what was going on with me was a, a desire to have authority over someone that should be having authority over me. To usurp the, the authority that the state, that the government puts in that person uh, that has authority to to uh, exact the laws of the, of the nation uh, around the population. Now there are things, there are ways in which I, I could have and should have dealt with that situation. I could have easily taken the guy's number plate, reported it with the time and location, etc. And there are mechanisms, that the police have assured me, there are mechanisms for them to check up on the, those things and take and take action. And I think this day and age, those those mechanisms are far better as well given everything that's going on around the place. Though what was going on in my heart, I was just wanting to have authority over someone that should that should have had authority in that situation over me. And I think I wanted to have a really cool story to tell the next day at school. That was what was going on with me. But there, there it is. Our culture always wants to try and usurp the authority that is over us. Our pridefulness wants to rebel against authority and push against authority. And I think unless we start to address some of these idols in our heart, sometimes it might be hard for us to look at these verses here and uh, and embrace the, the verses as the, in terms of what they are saying to us. So I think we need to stop asking questions such as, does the Bible seem wise to me? And start asking, do I seem wise in light of what the Bible says? And it's going to change how we look at... At the word, and we're not going to end up judging or being the judge of what God says, and instead let God be the judge of us and our motivations and what we uh, and, and our actions because of our motivations. So, we are countercultural. So, there's our a, there's a starting point that we must be countercultural, and that we are. And sometimes, if, we're, if a, if a if a verse slaps us in the face, perhaps we need to realise or, or think about how much our culture around us has influenced our thinking. And so, the verses. Let's just walk through the verses over the next couple of minutes here. The passage here, and I love the fact that this passage uh, emphasises some some differences. Uh, the, the passage addresses men, and it addresses women, and it addresses women and men differently, because we are different, and we struggle with different things. Firstly, in verse. 8. Uh, men are to pray with holy hands. Lifting up holy hands. Have a look at verse 8 there. I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, there is the uh, it's just at a sideline, of course, there is the it uh, well, was a debate, it probably really isn't a debate anymore about the raising of hands in church. And it's all well and it's good and there's, it's great to express yourself in terms of worship and singing and the like. So the, the, the scriptural call here, though, is to lift holy hands in prayer. You think, oh, that's a bit unusual. I don't usually raise my hands in prayer. But the context of that is Psalm 24, where the psalmist says that that uh, that my hands are clean and I have a pure heart. And we are to lift holy hands to the Lord, and particularly, and this can apply easily to both men and women that uh, Paul is specifically addressing men here in this particular context, he's saying, I want you to lift holy hands, and and when you are praying, you come to, come to the Lord, when you pray, when you gather together, you should be able to say that I have clean hands and a humble heart, sorry, a clean hands and a pure heart, clean hands and a pure heart. So that when we get together, when and 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 as we talk about the role of men in the church, role of men in the household, and by the way, and God's uh, sovereignty, uh, I'm tackling this passage uh, today. Uh, next week, Lyndon is tackling the role of men and women in the in the household from Ephesians five, and that was. Unplanned, God put those two things side by side, side by side. Um, so I'm really, really uh, pleased that I'm not tackling the the household things quite so much today. We're looking at the at the church series. But as we, as men, as as men gathered together, both in the home, and as we gather together corporately, we should be able to lift our hands and say, "I have clean hands and a pure heart." We have to imitate Christ. In this way christ had clean hands he had an absolute pure heart and he could stand before god and and pray and he could uh and, and he could uh, absolutely say that he had clean hands and a and a and a pure heart and so he could lead in servant leadership just as men are called to lead in servant leadership one of the reasons though that i think a lot of people would struggle a lot of men would struggle particularly and This can apply to women as well, but men would struggle to lift holy hands to the Lord and say that I have clean hands and a pure heart is uh, one of the the reasons, and probably many, but one that I think is gripping the church worldwide and and quite possibly, I don't want to bury my head in the sand, quite possibly and quite easily gripping the men in this church, stopping them from being able to lift holy hands and saying I have a pure heart before God is the issue of pornography. over the place, sorry. The 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 uh, the children started to to, to squawk and I see was sitting there thinking this is this is just something that would be fantastic for the church just to hear and to absorb and to, to soak into into and I just started praying there and I don't think this is my doing it is God's doing I just started praying there that 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 we would be able to hear what Lyndon the point that I knew Lyndon was just walking towards that was and he did it, and he did it well. I can't remember the exact words, but he had that home, and just as he was launching into the, the climax of that, the entire room went silent. I really think there is a spiritual battle that, that happens as we as we preach and as we bring the Word of God uh, to to one another, um, and perhaps on the very word there, um, I don't know, I don't want to have too much conjecture there, but it was noticeable. One of the things, though, that I think rips... Uh, rips churches apart from the inside out is, the, is this issue of pornography. And uh, if, you, if you just want to research a few stats, the stats are, are, are horrendous out there in the culture and only a, only a trickle better within the church oftentimes. Uh, and so, uh, so I want just, to just make a plea to the men and women, if this is if this is something that, it, that affects you, and I know the stats are growing within within women around this issue. If this is something, if, if pornography is a is a is something that is, has gripped you and gripped your heart, it is the, the, the devil has got his claws in you, and you need to be uh, free from that. You need to to uh, turn, repent from that, and get and get help to to do that. Uh, pornography is one of those things that just is, is unique in one way in terms of the way in which it digs into you and just digs into your heart. And so can I really encourage you to be able to lift holy hands to the Lord and say that I am clean, I have clean hands and a pure heart that you would take action so in two ways. One, get some help from someone, someone that you trust, a, a godly Christian men, probably a Godly Christian brother. And, uh, and get some help and get some accountability there. And on two, grab a good resource. One of the ones which I, I, I believe that a copy has at least been purchased for the for the library. I couldn't spot it on this this morning. Is this one here? Finally free by Heath Lambert. Uh, just a great resource to to help you through that topic and amongst other help. Um, anyway, so so men, can you lift up holy? hands and say that I have clean hands and a pure heart. And then Paul addresses the women as well. Women are also to glorify God in godly actions uh, through modesty, self-control. Have a look at that in verse 9. Likewise also, in a similar sort of way, notice that it's similar in that it's also in every place from verse 8. Likewise that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he's emphasizing here modesty, self-control, good works. These are the things that show us, that show the world that you have a pure heart and pure motivations. An emphasis on the inward and a de-emphasis on the outward, which is exactly like Christ himself. Exactly like Christ himself. Women are being called to be like Christ by not showing outwardly adorning things as, a, as, a, as any sort of symbol of who you are, but the inward is, is, the, uh, is how Christ shone out to the world. He, Isaiah tells us that he wasn't much to look upon. And we're told that, that he, he got about and he did not have a place to, to rest his head. And by worldly standards, he was not much. And yet, he is the, very, is the very image and form of God himself, and just like Christ, our women are, to, uh, are asked to emphasize the inward and de-emphasize the outward. He carries on though in verse 11, and this is where it kind of starts to get a little bit uh, for us. He says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Which was radical for Paul's day. It's kind of the opposite, it's the unradical in, in our day. But it was radical in Paul's day, because uh, he was asking women to, to, uh, to, be, uh, to learn, uh, to empower them for ministry. He wanted that to happen for women, because in, in his day that was, that was not the case. Women couldn't get an education, uh, which, which continued on for many, many years through, uh, through, through much of the world. But this learning and the church setting was supposed to be done in, uh, quietly and in full submission. Again, that hits us. It hits us hard. But here we're told, we're told that women are also to glorify God as they imitate Christ in godly submission. It's striking that this idea of, the idea of submission and headship, or submission and leadership, or however you want to term those ideas, it's really pushed back on in, in our culture, in our day and age. Yes, and and and, part, and I'm going to get some objections in a moment, but and one of the reasons why is that is that it feels like somehow women then become secondary, that are, that are somehow less because they are asked to be to be uh, to be uh, quiet, uh, do to do this quietly and then to be in submission. And Ephesians five is going to hit on some other submission ideas, and that really that's really hard. They're really kind of I've I've talked to some people who have described it as really hurting. And you, Christ, did exactly that. He was in, He was one. He was completely and utterly equal with the Father, one hundred percent. That's one of these ones that we need to contend with, contend for hard. Okay, the the Trinitarian idea that that Jesus is the Christ and He is God, one hundred percent. There is no secondary nature to to God. There is no there is no second place in terms of Christ. Secondary to, to the Father, He is 100% equal. We've got to contend there, yet He chose to be submissive to the Father. So we can we can never say, and the arguments that we make, and there's all sorts of discussions that are that are that are good to have around this topic, but we can never say that submission means lesser, or the submission means secondary to, or, or or any any wording around that, because if we do say that, then we are, we can be implying that Jesus was somehow lesser than the Father. Okay, Jesus. So, so women are called to, in, in an amazing way, glorify God as they imitate Christ in godly submission here. Now, so, the, the wording here though, in verse in verse 11, uh, this doesn't mean complete silence. Uh, it doesn't mean complete silence at all. Uh, the word quietly there is used elsewhere in, in the New Testament to be calm and not unruly. It lines up, lines up with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, God is a God of order, um, and it's not an absolute pro- prohibition. Of course, in First Corinthians 11, women are t- encouraged to pray, encouraged to prophesy. But women are, uh, as, as we walk on to verse 12 here and goes a little step further, Paul's saying that women aren't to take up this role of teaching and authority. So let's have a look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to reign, again, that word quiet, meaning calm and not unruly. And the context here is, of course, the Church, and specifically looking at the preaching and teaching of the the Word of God. It's not a generalization to privilege the voices of men over the voices of women. But we need to listen to this with the rest of the Bible in our ears. so important when we approach a passage like this that we remember that God does not contradict Himself. He's always giving a unified message. So one part of Scripture will either repeat something else in Scripture or it will complement another part in Scripture. So when we see this, we realize that this is not a, a, a command to be completely silent in every aspect or anything like that. It's, it's, and it's not saying that women shouldn't teach at all. The rest of the Bible makes that clear. Titus 2, a woman are to teach the younger woman. There's a wonderful aspect there of, uh, of, of that. Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 1 and, uh, and 2 Timothy 3. Timothy's grandm- uh, mother and grandmother taught Timothy in his youth, uh, which, which was good. If you have a look at Acts chapter 11 verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila, both of them, uh, husband and wife team, corrected Apollos. And because Priscilla did that, Priscilla corrected Apollos, the gospel was better preserved for the generations to come. If a woman corrects a man or is explaining something more clearly, that is not a threat to complementarianism. That is complementarianism, working out. But there are specific ways and specific arenas in which uh, God has reserved some teaching aspects to men. We want to be a church that embraces all the Bible and sees women flourish to to the greatest degree possible the greatest degree possible that, they, that, that we all can. Men, we need to, to be very clear about something when we push practically into this area. We, as a, in terms of men, we are not innately more theological than women because of our gender. That does not work like that. Or we are not innately more godly than women. My wife, when she corrects me, uh, or when, when she points out something in, in my life, that is not a threat to me. That is a God-given gift to me. She is... My wife is loving me and being my helper in doing that. And my kids have started to figure out that they can do this a little bit as well now that they're a little older. Another topic for another time. <clears throat> but when the church is gathered as a, in a co-ed meeting uh, and the word is to be taught, the word is to be taught by men. And the authority of the word of God is to be exercised by men and uh, not women in that specific circumstance. And why? Not because the elders said so. Because the Sovereign Lord of the Universe has said that that is the role of men and the role of women in this particular scenario. So, and there's a little bit of time we've got left. Let's have a look at some objections and the practical outworkings. I've had a look over the time. Uh, uh, this, I've, this particular Sunday has, has sucked up, uh, up an inordinate amount of time in terms of research, far more than any other uh, Sunday that has uh, or message that I've put together in a long, long time. And so I've a look at the, a number of different views. I want to just have a look at a couple of objections to this. Firstly, um, some women are, are, so good, are so gifted. How can we deny those gifted women opportunity in their gifting? Now, let's be really clear no one is saying that men are more gifted teachers than women. There are some women in here in our congregation who are incredibly, amazingly gifted teachers. There is no doubt, no argument about that. when we argue that women should have the opportunity to teach in public because of their gifting, what we end up doing, I contend that what we end up doing is that we're pitting the Spirit of God working in a person against the Word of God having authority over a person. The experience of the Spirit of God in a person should always be governed by the Word of God having authority over the person. The Spirit, the, the Bible, and the spirit of God will never be enemies. They will never contradict one another. They will always be unified. It just could not work e- either way. And I was this is just a real quick story. When I was uh, visiting some friends down in Palmerston North again, when I was pretty young, and we were all pretty dumb at that stage. Um, we uh, some engineering students down in Palmerston North. I think it was the 21st or something. We were we were gathering there together for, and some engineering students who who, who had flattered together had two bicycles there. And they thought one night, and maybe there's a little bit of alcohol involved, but I'm not sure. They thought one night, let's just try and make a tandem bicycle out of these two bikes. Great idea, great little project for for a couple of engineering students. And so they did it, and they did it in an unusual way. What they did is they, they, they ended up with a bike with two sets of pedals, two seats, two handlebars, and three wheels. And both so, front wheel, a back wheel, and a wheel in the middle. And both the front wheels could turn independently. Which was hilarious to watch, <laughs> but completely impractical. Now, when we get to the point where we are saying, but the Word of God says one thing, but the Spirit of God is is showing up some giftings in, in, in another way that might be different to that, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're like that bicycle that has two, two wheels that can work independently. It just, it cannot be. The Spirit of God and the Word of God will always work together. Remember, we always start with theology, we start with what the Bible says, and then our experience has to go and line up with the Bible. If we ever uh, get them around the other way, then we're going to have church history tells us we've got problems. Alright, another uh, couple more objections. Don't these verses restrict women from the most significant ministry in the church? Are we treating women as second-class citizens? When we say this, we admit that we still have one of the most dominant cultural idols still driving us. The cultural idol that belief that significance comes from leadership or authority. That is what the world says. The world says that we gain significance because of our position. The world says we gain significance because of what we do. The Bible says we have significance because who we are in Christ. Full stop. There is no more to that. We are all one, in Christ and we all gain our our, our identity and who we are in Christ. We are all made in the image of God, 100% equal. We are all gaining our identity in Christ, 100% equal. So we can't start to use language like second class citizens or anything like that because that's what the world says about that issue. The Bible says something completely different. I'm have to keep on going here. Last objection Wasn't this just for the uh, first century? And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to uh, leave you with this. Have a look at verse 13 and 14 in your own time, perhaps. Just a couple of uh, comments, though. The verses in 13 and 14 tell us why Paul made these statements. And again, those, those verses just grind on us a little bit. But I want you to notice one thing. He does not give you any reason apart from a reason that was grounded in creation. And a reason that was grounded in creation actually before the fall, in terms of the, the order of creation and, and Adam being formed first, Adam naming things, and naming the animals, and then even naming uh, Eve, naming the, the woman. He, he named the woman before the fall and then he gave her a individual name, Eve, after the fall. Um, and of course we know that the relationship aspect uh, got bad and terrible throughout the Old Testament after the fall, but that, uh, but that authority structure was was lined up before the fall, and so Paul points to that as the reason for, uh, for uh, the the grounding or the the reason why he says these things. So we can't then go and say, was that just for the first century? No, Paul says this is for all time. It's grounded right back in creation. What then for TABC? Remember, the, do you remember the Canadian road story that I told you? Remember the, 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 the long road? there yeah, sometimes, and, and the road was so long and so straight that they had to adjust it for the curvature of the earth. Remember that sort of story? Well, I think then there is some uh, things that we, sorry, we'll jump, jump to that in a second. So there is some things that as a church then we should be looking at and thinking about in this area. We want to see women uh, and men serving in the gift. We, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about getting in the game. We want to see everyone serving in their gift. We really need to recognize though, that there is a history here and in, our, in, our, um, in the wider church throughout New Zealand and the West, that probably has been, an, how do I put this nicely? And perhaps an unbiblical pushing down of women and, and that's, that's a reality I think and I've spoken to some in, in this church with far more grey hair than I have um, that, uh, that, would, that would agree with that so we want to recognise that, that history um, and we want to move to a biblical position and not to follow the world as we try and correct that and so uh, we want to move our practice and our culture to be in line with a biblical complementarian position as best we can and here's what I want to, what I, where I want to finish up with One of the things that I've been talking with the elders in the E-team over the last few weeks about is that if this this idea of um, a biblical complementarian idea, which I would describe as every position in the church in ministry and leadership is open to both genders, male and female, with the exclusion of two that God puts aside for men, eldership and the teaching of men in 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 a church setting such as this then we need to try, if that's the, if that's the kind of the line that, the, that as an eldership we, we agree with and believe is biblical, then how do we move our practice to being that? Because I don't think our practice is exactly that at the moment. I think mean, there's some cultural hangovers perhaps from the past. There's all sorts of things that, are, um, that, uh, that, that mean that we're not operating there. And so I've asked already a number of people around the church to join me in a kind of a think tank to try and establish that, and there's a, a few more that I'm, I'm yet to yet to ask. And you know, if this is something that's really, really hot on your agenda, or, or that you're really, really interested in and in trying to pursue, and, um, I would love to hear from you. That's not going to be a massive team, but I'd love to hear from you if you're if you're particularly interested in thinking through how we might bring the the church to be uh, be in line with that position. And finally, sorry, I have not been able to address everything, but there is. This booklet that's there's a link to um, so you can download it. Uh, it is a small booklet that addresses 50 questions on this topic by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's available for download there at that link, or you can Google that uh, the, the uh, string there. But there is also about 30, 40, 50 copies that Noah has been uh, printing out this morning because we just got word from the publisher that we can uh, print it, uh, print that out. And so they are available just out, out in the foyer there as well. Addresses 50 questions that I have not been able to address around this issue. Uh, so just if, you're, if you're wondering about, hey, what about this? What about that? Pick a copy of that up. You can either uh, download it or you can grab a copy as you, as you get out and out. And hopefully that is a helpful resource as well. Let me pray as you finish up. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we have been able to uh, just think about this topic together. Lord, there's been lots to go through. And it has been a topic that has been, uh, has been in, the, in the church in the past, has been divisive. But Lord, I pray that as we start this conversation, as we continue on to talk about this conversation, Lord, I pray that it would be one that where we uh, do not divide over it, but that we would just lovingly talk about it together as a family. Our Father, we just uh, ask that as we continue on here as, as a church body, that we would unite specifically around who you are and what you have done for us. And we thank you uh, for the ability to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, bless us as we continue to worship you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.